the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I know Megan made bad choices, but she was an amazing mom. She was a single mom. How else is a single mom supposed to put food on the table and clothes on her back without having to take too much time from her? She was a great mom. She was really her world. And she just got lost. I had that feeling before I even started calling her phone. And then, when I did call her phone and I got that, it's like almost like it was like, oh my God, something is wrong. This is the feeling I am feeling, like there is something wrong. I had even called a couple of people asking if they had talked to my sister and they told me no and told them if they saw her or talked to her to call me. And then my dad called me at like eight o'clock at night and asked me if I had talked to Megan. And I said, no, why? And he said, because she didn't come back to the motel. It was terrible. My mind automatically went to the worst. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vianick, and I am here with Alexis Linkletter. How are you doing today, Lex? Oh, I am feeling good, and I'm excited about what we're kicking off today. Right. So today we are kicking off our special series on the Long Island serial killer. So today is part one of a special three-part series where you're going to hear from a member of one of the victim's families who has never spoken publicly before. And we're doing kind of like an intensive, if you will. And as always, if you're a member of our Patreon, you're going to have all three parts right now in your feed. And if you want to join our Patreon right now, we always put our multi-parter episodes in our Patreon so you don't have to wait for the next week to hear the next episode episode. And beyond this three-week kind of intensive on the Long Island serial killer, we're going to also bring you an additional episode on Fridays for the next 10 weeks. Each episode will be dedicated to one of the victims of the Long Island serial killer. Right. And this is the part that we're really excited about because it's really different for us. We're also launching a fundraising and information spreading initiative called the Heavy Metal Project. And we've created this in collaboration with a Long Island-based jewelry brand, Jimmy Toast. And the designer behind Jimmy Toast, her name's Jamie, and I actually went to elementary school with her on Long Island. And she's designed a necklace in honor of and inspired by each victim of the Long Island serial killer. So every Friday when this victim-focused bonus episode is released, also what will be released is a limited edition necklace, one named after and inspired by the victim we're discussing that week. And it'll be available for purchase in this limited drop. And Patreon members, you will also get early access to these drops. But what's really cool about what we're doing is where the money from the sales are going to. Right. So 100% of the net profits from the sales of these necklaces will be donated to SWAP USA. So SWAP stands for the Sex Workers Outreach Project, and they're doing some really, really important work. It's a social justice network dedicated to the fundamental human rights of people involved in the sex trade and their communities, focused on ending violence and stigma through education and advocacy. So SWAP really is saving lives. Right. And we'll be posting about this everywhere. And you can get yours at theheavymetalproject.com if you're interested in getting a necklace. We'll be posting on Instagram and in our Facebook group and TikTok, wherever else. And we'll also reiterate the instructions and details about all of this at the end of this episode as well. And like Jack said, 100% of the net profits going to this really incredible organization. 
But beyond all of that, the purpose of the heavy metal project and the purpose of these necklaces is about combating the fact that media coverage about Lisk and the victims is dwindling. With this campaign, we're committed to honoring the victims, keeping their memory alive, and keeping them at the forefront of media conversations. It's also important for us to have conversations about sex worker advocacy. Those in the sex trade should not be subjected to this level of unchecked violence. It's sickening. It's maddening. And instead of feeling paralyzed, we're trying to do something about it. Right. And for those of you who have been listening to us for a while, you may already know about the Unraveled Long Island Serial Killer podcast and TV series that I produced and co-hosted for Investigation Discovery. This is a case that is really, really important to me. And I spent more than five years researching all the political and police corruption that derailed the original investigation. But what we're doing here today will be different because we know that the listeners of The First Degree may not have heard that series, and you may be finding out about this case for the first time. So this is really, like Jack said in the beginning, an intensive and a way to introduce you to this case so you can maybe help. So we're going to give you an overview of this case from start to finish, and we're going to tell you everything that you need to know about the case, the investigation, suspects, theories, the aftermath, and most importantly, the victims. So with all that being said, we're going to dive right in. So let's do this. A gruesome find by Gilgo Beach. Skeletal remains discovered right off of Ocean Parkway. Tonight, police say they've discovered three more bodies. They have found what appears to be another body near Gilgo Beach. Body count along Ocean Parkway continues to climb. What we do know for certain, and what is now very clear, is that the area in and around Gilgo Beach has been used to discard human remains for some period of time. The Long Island serial killer has many names. The Gilgo Beach Killer, the Butcher of Manorville, the Seaside Sicko, the Craigslist Ripper, and perhaps his most well-known name, LISC, which is the acronym for the Long Island serial killer. But despite at least 10 victims in over two decades of investigations, we have no idea what the Long Island serial killer's real name is. And we don't know if it's one person, two people, or more. Since 2010, the List case remains unsolved. And there are some understandable reasons as to why the police have struggled to crack this case. For example, Lisk was careful. He killed sex workers. And he dismembered some of their bodies so they would be damn near impossible to identify. And he hid their remains in difficult-to-search places. But there are also some not-so-understandable reasons why this killer walks free. Like how the local police departments that discovered Lisk's existence was corrupt, and how those corrupt authorities spent years downplaying Lisk's true danger, brushing off missing persons reports, misleading the public, turning down the FBI when the federal investigators offered to help. It wasn't until multiple sets of skeletal remains were discovered that the Lisk case finally received proper attention. But by that time, it was too late. Any trace of Lisk was long gone. For over two decades, the families of Lisk's victims have been suffering, and they deserve to know what happened to their sisters, their daughters, and their mothers. They deserve justice. Lisk chose to target sex workers because he thought they were vulnerable, forgotten women with no place in the world, easier to isolate, easier to kidnap, and easier to kill without anyone noticing or caring. But he was wrong. We care, and we notice. 
So today's case begins on June 6th of 2010, and this was a big month for movie sequels as both Toy Story 3 and The Twilight Saga Eclipse were premiering in theaters. And in music, all the cool kids were listening to Usher's OMG and B.O.B.'s Airplanes. And meanwhile, NASA discovers that the Saturn moon Titan could support life. Also in a YouTube world, Paul Vasquez's iconic double rainbow video was on the brink of going viral. I'm sure everybody knows that video. It is one of the best. And the Los Angeles Lakers defeat the Boston Celtics to win the NBA championship. And a famous late night comedian, Larry King, announces that he's going to step down from a show, Larry King Live, which he'd been hosting for over 25 years. And the setting for today's case is Scarborough, Maine. Situated on the southeastern coast of Maine, Scarborough is a bedroom community for the city of Portland, Maine, which is just seven miles away. The seaside settlement was established in 1658, but was destroyed shortly after during a battle in King Philip's War. By 1749, Scarborough had rebuilt and become quite rich thanks to its lucrative cattle and timber industries. And centuries later, Scarborough is still a wealthy town. And while Maine's average household income is $63,000, Scarborough's is $105. Today, about 21,000 people live there. With sandy beaches, scenic steak parks, and artisanal cheese shops, this picturesque suburb is a hidden gem for retirees and tourists. Not to mention, Scarborough has the world's only life-size chocolate mousse. That's mousse spelled M-O-O-S-E, as in the animal, not the dessert. The mousse's name is Lenny. Lenny is six and a half feet tall, made of 1,700 pounds of milk chocolate, and lives in the Len Libby candy shop. Our first degree for today's case is named Amanda, and Amanda's half-sister was Megan Waterman. Megan lived in Scarborough, Maine with her grandmother and her young daughter. And when Megan was 22 years old, she became a victim of the Long Island serial killer. Amanda has never spoken to the media about her sister's murder, and we're really, really honored to help Amanda share Megan's story. And not only is this an important unsolved case, it's also deeply meaningful to both of us, me and Jack. We hear cases all the time about violence against women. So we're honored to help Amanda tell her story for the first time. And beyond that, I'm from Long Island. I know the area and I know the people. So let's meet our first degree, Amanda, and get to know her sister, Megan Waterman. And since they had different moms, Amanda and Megan grew up in different places. But when Amanda was 14 years old, she moved to Portland, Maine. And this is just a few miles away from Megan's home in Scarborough. So the two teenage girls started spending more and more time together. And in no time at all, they forged that unique bond that only sisters understand. I'm younger. She was my only big sister. We have the same dads, different moms. We lived in separate households, like still saw each other. And then... I went and lived with my mom, who lived in Portland, and Megan was still in that area, and we reconnected, and we were, like, inseparable after that. Amanda and Megan were instant best friends, and the two sisters did everything together. Literally everything. Took kids to the park. Before we had our kids, I went to her grandparents a lot and stayed there. We'd chill, watch movies. We had the same interests in everything, so that, that was good. We watched Save the Last Dance, I don't know how many times. Nails, makeup, hair. It was everything I could have ever wanted growing up in a sister. As Amanda and Megan entered adulthood, their connection grew even stronger. So strong, in fact, that the two women were going to start a business together. Our goal was to own a salon when we got older. We were going to go to hair school, own a salon. 
I almost continued that dream, but it was just so surreal to like actually do it without her. So I, I waited because I felt like I just wasn't ready. All those feelings came rushing back and it was, it was a lot. If you're confused, don't worry. You're not alone. So many questions remain unanswered. Like what in the world happened to Megan? Why was this aspiring cosmetologist, sister and mother, senselessly murdered? And what kind of monster could and would kill her? And will that person be forced to face the consequences of their actions? So to answer these questions, you all know the drill. We're going back. Megan Amelia Waterman was born on January 18th of 1988 in Portland, Maine, to her mother, Lorraine, and her father, Gregory Sr. Megan had at least six siblings, including our first degree, Amanda, but she only grew up with one of them, her older brother, Greg Jr. Megan, Greg Jr., and their parents lived in a small apartment, but even though Megan's parents lived together when Megan was a baby, they were no longer in a relationship. According to Robert Kolker in his book, Lost Girls, Megan's parents had actually broken up four months before Megan was born. And by the time baby Megan arrived, her father, Gregory, had a new girlfriend. And this new girlfriend also lived in their tiny apartment. And together, the four adults and two children had an affordable living situation. But as you can imagine, with six people and only one bedroom and the emotional implications of all of that, it's probably crowded physically and emotionally. Oh my gosh, super, super crowded. Lorraine, Megan, and Greg Jr. slept in the bedroom while Gregory Sr. and his girlfriend slept on the living room floor. So, you know, needless to say, this whole situation is not ideal. But Megan's parents were barely in their 20s and they were just doing their best to figure the whole parenting thing out. Eventually, for several reasons, Megan's grandmother, Mariel, applied for custody of her two young grandchildren, and Megan and Greg Jr. were taken away from their parents, but they weren't placed with their grandmother right away. The two siblings were actually placed with a foster family in a nearby town, while the custody situation was sorted out. But somehow, Mariel convinced the foster family to let her have Megan and Greg Jr., and after three months in foster care, and with no permission from the legal powers that be... Muriel just picked up baby Megan and toddler Greg Jr. from the foster home and never brought them back. And for the record, this is not how the foster system works. A foster child's relative can't just roll up and say, hi, uh, why don't I just take this little rascal off your hands and drive off with them? Like, not how it works. And if we're getting technical, Muriel might have sort of kind of kidnapped her grandkids. But why would Muriel want custody of these children so badly that she literally broke the law to get them? No matter the reason why Mariel wanted to take care of Megan and Greg Jr., most of their family agreed that Megan and Greg Jr. were way better off with Mariel than they were with their parents. And Lorraine and Gregory Sr. visited Megan and Greg Jr. occasionally. And eventually, Mariel and her husband became the two children's primary main guardians. And Greg Jr. told journalist Rob Kolker, My grandmother was like my mother. My grandfather was the only father I knew. All we had was us. And unfortunately, Mariel, who was in her 50s, had a hard time controlling her two rambunctious grandkids. And that's especially the case, and especially true, for Megan. On the one hand, Megan was this free-spirited and vivacious little girl. You know, she loved music, dancing, and her family. Her brother Greg Jr. told Newsday, Megan didn't have a bad bone in her body. She was a good person. A very bubbly, smile could light up a room. She had amazing energy. Her energy was just so magnetic and so 
so full. It was just, it was great to be around her. I love being around her. On the other hand, Megan also loved taking risks and having adventures, which meant she got into a lot of trouble. I was a kid just like this. <laughs> I was the worst kid. I snuck out. I could not be controlled. This is a teen of my own heart. You're resonating. Oh, absolutely. And when Megan was in the first grade, she climbed over a bridge railing 30 feet off the ground and refused to come back. Her teachers actually had to call the police to force Megan to return to safety. And throughout her childhood, Megan got into verbal and physical fights with other kids, particularly at the local skating rink. By fifth grade, Megan had been transferred to a school for at-risk youth, but she was kicked out when she tried to hold another student underwater in the school swimming pool as a joke. By age 17, Megan dropped out of school and started picking up odd jobs for cash. And at this point, Megan started getting in trouble for other things, little things. They were often smaller offenses involving petty theft, drugs, and underage drinking. And Megan spent some time in a special facility for juvenile offenders. But despite her penchant for trouble, Megan was charming. She even befriended one of the police officers who usually arrested her. And for years, the officer would call Megan just to see if she needed anything and to make sure she was okay. But Megan was infamous for having a hard time accepting other people's help. You know, she was really fiercely independent. Megan's always been independent. She was working at 15. She's never been the type to lean on people for help. Even the ones that went to her, you know, like, she never asked for help. Although some describe Megan as a dictionary definition of defiant, she had a big heart. And people who knew Megan believed that at her core, she was romantic. And when you hear about her upbringing and... The volatility involved in that, even though it seems like lots of people in her life loved her and your family can love you and it can still be an unstable upbringing, the acting out and the rebelliousness tracks. I mean, as someone who can relate to this so well, it's what happens. You know, you get this sort of drive in you to just be risky and bold and I did it too and I I can connect to this completely. Absolutely. So when Megan was around 18 years old, she became accidentally pregnant after a one-night stand with a DJ she met at a club. Suddenly, Megan was headed down the same path as her mom, a young woman with few resources who was pregnant and unsure of the future. But Megan was determined of one thing, and that's for sure. She was going to be a damn good mom, and she would do anything to ensure her child had everything that they needed, even if it meant putting herself in danger. She was a great mom. She was really her world. And she just got lost. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply.
In the summer of 2006, 18-year-old Megan Waterman gave birth to her daughter. And right away, Megan's friends and family could really see what an amazing and dedicated mom that she was. She was devoted and caring and fun. Every minute that Megan could spend with her little daughter, she did. She read books to her daughter, played games with her, and watched movies with her. Megan was giving her daughter everything that she never had. A present mother, a structured household, and a chance to pursue her dreams. But outside of motherhood, Megan was dealing with some serious hardships. Right. And when Megan went missing in the summer of 2010, she was 22 years old. And at that point, Megan had been arrested at least twice as an adult. Once for taking, selling, and using drug paraphernalia, and another time for theft. Megan and her four-year-old daughter still live with her grandmother, Muriel, and money was still tight. And during the day, Megan worked at a couple of different sandwich shops. And at night, she worked as an exotic dancer at a few nightclubs. And at this point, Megan also had a boyfriend. He was a guy named Akeem Malik Cruz, who also went by Vibe. And Megan and Akeem had been dating for about a year. And according to our first scrim, Amanda, Akeem was just bad news. And she had always had this kind of bad feeling about him. I knew of him. Wasn't a fan. They were just alienating her from her family and stuff. You know, I, I really feel like he was doing that. And that's what bothers me. And I went from seeing that girl almost every single day from the time I was 14 until she disappeared. Right before she disappeared, the time that she had dated Akeem, the calls were were limited. The visits were limited. Everything was just limited. And before Megan and I had no limits. Like, you know, he really kind of like just brainwashed her into like, completely living a, a completely almost different life, I guess. Megan would confide in Amanda about Akeem, and Amanda said these were Megan's frequent complaints. How controlling he was, how he treated her. We went for a walk one day, and she thought Akeem was following us. She was really, like, in her head and scared. Megan and Akeem had met at a dance club in Portland, Maine, in the spring of 2009, and Megan was out with her friends when Akeem caught her eye. He was a cocaine dealer from Brooklyn, and he and Megan immediately hit it off. Akeem knew that Megan had some financial struggles, so after they dated for a few months, Akeem presented Megan with a way to get cash fast, and that was with sex work. Akeem would find Megan's clients online, set up the appointments, and keep her safe. And in return, Megan would pay him a percentage of her profits. So basically, Akeem would be Megan's pimp. This opportunity seemed kind of appealing to Megan. After all, she was a grown woman living in her grandmother's house, and that wasn't ideal. And not her dream living situation. And Megan had her daughter's future to think about. Plus, there's good money in sex work. And when there's no other opportunities where you live, it seems extra appealing. And we brought up the money. It's like really good money. Some sex workers report that they make thousands of dollars every week. And since sex work is illegal, that's 100% untaxed income. And the cash would go straight into Megan's pocket. For a single mom who needed money, sex work felt like it could be the perfect solution to her problems, especially if she had a man close by to protect her. I know Megan made bad choices, but she was an amazing mom. I know deep down, like, she was a single mom. How else is a single mom supposed to put food on the table and clothes on her back without having to take too much time from her? But sex work is hardly ever the perfect solution, and not because it's sex, but more so because it's illegal. And since sex work is illegal, it's unregulated, and that makes it incredibly dangerous. According to Scott Cunningham, a professor at Baylor University, sex work is, statistically, the number one most dangerous job for a woman in the United States. 
For every 100,000 female sex workers, 204 of them will be murdered on the job. For comparison, the second most dangerous job is a female liquor store employee. And that's for every 100,000 female liquor store employees, only four will be murdered on the job. So you're probably asking yourself, why is sex work so incredibly deadly? The answer is simple. Men who pay for sex, or Johns, they kill female sex workers. And they're getting away with it. Since sex work is illegal, sex workers are already going great lengths to avoid the police. They often use burner phones, multiple identities, lesser-known websites, and more to stay off law enforcement's radar. So it's really hard to know when sex workers really are in danger. A sex worker could be missing for a long stretch of time without anybody noticing. And when someone does report a sex worker missing to the authorities, the police often conduct these half-hearted investigations at the very best. Right. And real quick, I want to add something to the heels of what you just said, Jack, because I have a feeling any pearl-clutching people listening are going to be like, well, they shouldn't be doing this illegal work then. Yeah, maybe not. But guess who the Johns are? Your politicians, Mm -hmm. the dads that you admire in your community. So before we blame the women, blame the fucking customers and the high demand, because if there wasn't a demand, they wouldn't be doing it. And these people, oftentimes politicians, who say we're not going to, you know, create legislation to protect sex workers, there's politicians who engage in this stuff secretly. So mm-hmm. I don't want to hear any of that because these women are just meeting a demand that is there. Yes. Anyways, according to the William and Mary Law School, law enforcement agencies are extremely biased against sex workers. So that's another thing that hurts them in this particular situation. In fact, Police departments regularly shrug off murdered sex workers. They don't devote as many resources to identifying their remains or finding their killers. And the American public is also guilty of also being biased against sex workers. When a sex worker is murdered, there's little to no media outcry. And that's because society just doesn't care as much. Many people believe that sex workers asked for it due to their high-risk lifestyle. And beyond that, there's media bias too. News outlets are far less likely to think their consumers will care because they are less likely to care. So it's this like snowball effect of neglect of these cases and these women who are performing a service that men keep asking for. But at the end of the day, sex workers are people just like everybody else who are just trying to make ends meet. And many sex workers are parents that are trying to provide for their children by any means necessary. And this is just like Megan was doing for her daughter. So when our first degree Amanda realized Megan had gotten involved in sex work, she was really worried. She was really upset. And Amanda didn't want Megan to get hurt. I found out that she was doing this and I called her up and I was like, Megan, like, what's this I hear you're prostituting? And she's like, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like... So you mean like there's something to talk about? Like, what do you mean you don't want to talk about it? Like, and she's like, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like, do you understand what you're doing? Like, do you understand what can happen to you? Do you understand that they don't give a crap about you, Megan? But Megan was adamant that her boyfriend slash pimp Akeem would keep her safe. Akeem will protect me, a vibe. She never called him Akeem. She always called him vibe. I looked right at her. I said, Megan, I don't get a good vibe by him. She said, oh, it's funny you say that. That's his nickname. I said, yeah, well, it should be bad vibe because I get a bad vibe by him. And Amanda had good reason for getting bad vibes from Akeem. When she was on the phone with Megan, Akeem interrupted them in literally the most awful way possible. I was like, Megan, you need to, like, get out of this. Like, I'd watched a, 
a show on these two girls that were just walking and they picked them up. Said they were giving them a ride, brought them back to a house, kidnapped them, locked all the way down the door. They had no way out and they brought them to tractor trailer stops. It was terrible. So of course that is going through my head when I'm talking to Megan and like literally begging her to get out. And Akeem grabbed the phone from her and was like, don't call my phone ever again. Your phone, your phone. Okay, okay, Bob. And the whole time Megan's like, give me the phone, give me the phone, like, let me talk to my sister. He told me I was a piece of crap and do not call her phone ever again. We exchanged a few words and then he told me when I die, he was gonna shit and piss on my grave and wipe his ass with it. It was a lot. And Megan and I got back on the phone because I, I, I think he actually hung up and then she called me back. But I could tell like she's not herself. She wasn't herself. You know, this is supposed to be the person that loved my sister so much, but literally was like talking to me terribly. Why? Because it, I'm messing with his money. He saw dollar signs. That's all he saw when he looked at my sister. I tried to get her to really open her eyes, but he had already convinced her that he loved her. I didn't like him from that point on. Megan and Akeem stayed together, and every few months, Megan and Akeem would make the six-hour journey from Scarborough, Maine, to New York City. And when they arrived in New York, Akeem would post ads on Craigslist or similar websites, and they'd advertise the services of Sexy Lexi, which was Megan's sex work alias. Then Akeem would go with Megan to see these Johns to make sure that she was safe. Akeem and Megan would continue this pattern over and over again for a few weeks. And then when they were satisfied enough with their profits, they'd make the trek back to Maine. Akeem and Megan were pretty successful with these methods. And according to our research, Megan was only arrested for sex work once. It was in October of 2009 and her John was an undercover detective. But, you know, other than that one time, business was booming for them. Megan's grandmother, Muriel, and her brother, Greg Jr., tried to convince Megan to leave sex work, but it was a really difficult decision for Megan. Because of sex work, Megan was able to provide more for her daughter. And Megan loved her daughter more than anything in the world. Every time that she and Akeem made their way to New York for sex work, Megan made sure to call her daughter three times a day. Once in the morning, again in the afternoon, and right at bedtime. By the spring of 2010, Megan had been doing sex work for about a year, and to her family's relief, she was ready to quit. Megan's friend, Nicole Haycock, told Newsday, Megan was happy about her life. I thought things were turning around for her. Nicole also said that Akeem wanted Megan to stop doing sex work too. Apparently, Akeem told Megan that he wanted to settle down and start a family. But you have to wonder if Akeem was possibly using that to dangle a carrot and emotionally manipulate Megan to do what he wanted her to do. Because despite all of these hints that Megan could stop doing sex work, she never actually did. Amanda remembers the last few times that she spoke with Megan, and they were some really hard conversations. Amanda didn't feel like she could be in Megan's life anymore. It was the sex work, all of the danger that came with it, and her dislike and distrust of Akeem. And it was all just too much for Amanda to watch her sister go through. I gave her a hug. Thought I loved her. The last time I saw her is what I tried to hold on to because the last time we talked was about what she was doing in it. I think it's been like the hardest thing about this this whole thing was that I like I like basically told her I, I couldn't I couldn't be a part of her life. It was so hard for me to watch somebody I loved so deeply involved in that because I I was not a rookie with knowledge of what 
prostitution as like and then find out my sister was doing that it was like i ran into a brick wall like and then i tried to talk her out of it and she just kept like trying to convince me that she was gonna be okay on memorial day weekend of 2010 Akeem and Megan got on a bus in Maine to go to New York City for Megan's sex work, just like they normally did. No one is sure where Akeem and Megan stayed for the first week in New York. But we do know that on June 5th, Megan and Akeem checked into a Holiday Inn Express in Hopog, New York. And that is in Suffolk County on Long Island. And for the record, I've actually been to this hotel several times. I've driven past it probably 200 times. It's located literally in the next town over from where I grew up. To help paint a picture, it's actually a really extremely nice suburban area. So whatever you're picturing, it's a beautiful, well-to-do suburb, really. In fact, there's actually a huge Suffolk County Police precinct very, very close, right down the road from this particular Holiday Inn. And at around 9 p.m. on that June 5th evening, surveillance footage showed Akeem leaving the hotel. Then, at 1.30 a.m. on June 6th, Megan left the hotel too, and she was never seen again. When Megan didn't call Akeem in the morning like she usually did, he started getting worried. Akeem went back to the Holiday Inn Express, but Megan wasn't there. He then called Megan's grandmother, Mariel, and asked if Megan was with her, but she wasn't there either. Amanda happened to call Megan that day as well. At the time, Amanda had no idea that Megan was on Long Island or what was going on. Amanda just wanted to fix things with her sister after their last difficult conversation. But Megan didn't answer. The craziest part about that whole thing is like that day I, um, I had woken up with a feeling come over me like I had never felt before. And I couldn't place my finger on it. It had been weeks since I had talked to Megan and I was trying to call her. I couldn't not talk to her, you know, I mean, as much as I disapproved of what she was choosing to do, and I knew she was better than that, like, and I worried about her safety, and I was hoping our our bond was strong enough for her, because I basically gave her an ultimatum, it was me, not knowing how, like, deep she was really in, so I, of course, am, like, I need to call her, I need to reconcile with her. And I know Megan's the type of person that you could call, like, you could fight with her and call her up the very next day and she would act like nothing ever happened. So I had no worries whatsoever that Megan would have not answered that phone if she saw me calling her. And the problem was it kept going to voicemail. So, you know, I had that feeling before I even started calling her phone. And then when I did call her phone and I got that, it's like almost like it was like, oh my God, something is wrong. This is the feeling I am feeling. Like, there is something wrong. I had even called a couple of people asking if they had talked to my sister, and they told me no. And told them if they saw her or talked to her to call me. And then my dad called me at, like, 8 o'clock at night and asked me if I had talked to Megan. And I said, no, why? And he said, because she didn't come back to the motel. It was terrible. My mind automatically went to the worst. As it became apparent that no one had a clue where Megan was, everyone was feeling anxious. Megan wouldn't go off on her own like this. And Megan never, ever missed her three daily phone calls with her daughter. But on June 6th, 
Megan didn't call her daughter. She couldn't. She left her wallet, her keys, and her money, and her phone in her now empty hotel room. And according to everyone who knew Megan, including Amanda, that was super fucking weird. When I tried calling her at 9.30, 10 o'clock, to 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and it still had been going to voicemail, faithfully calling her every half hour to hour, just because I know that my sister would have never, ever gone with her phone being off that long. Not in a million years. Megan had that phone on her no matter where she went. All the time, my sister had her phone on her, and it was always charged. She always made sure she had her charger with her. We were somewhere that she didn't have a charger. She found a way to charge her phone. There was just no way Megan would go that long without charging her phone. I lived literally like three houses away from a store, and Megan didn't go without it. She never went without her phone anywhere, ever. So when the detective told me that her phone was there, because I'm like, can't you track her phone? Her phone's here. What? It's like nothing made sense. Megan was reported missing to the Suffolk County Police on June 8th, only two days after she disappeared. But right from the jump, it was clear that Megan's case was not a priority to them. In fact, according to Megan's family, the Suffolk County Police waited a whole month to begin their investigation. The managing editor of the Long Island Press newspaper even said that since Megan was a sex worker, her case got kind of swept under the rug and didn't get the attention it deserved. Months later, in October of 2010, the Long Island Press realized that Megan's case was still slipping between the cracks. So journalist Jacqueline Gallucci, someone we interviewed for Unraveled, actually, published an expose entitled, quote, Lost Girls, When Women Go Missing on Long Island, Some Matter, Prostitutes Don't. And here's a quick excerpt. In the 183 days, Megan has been missing. Her case has rarely made the news. In fact, like most missing persons cases involving prostitutes, it's hardly gotten any attention at all. Since the police weren't doing much at all, Megan's family took the investigation into their own hands. Megan's brother, Greg Jr., and her friend, Nicole, sold some of their valuables so that they could afford a trip to Long Island to search for Megan. They passed out hundreds of missing person flyers with Megan's Craigslist photo on them. And Megan's mother contacted a nonprofit for missing persons called Lost and Missing Incorporated. They helped set up a whole website for Megan. Later, they connected with an international human rights group called Avaz, which hired two additional PIs that specialized in sex trafficking. Right, because that was actually the running theory for a long time, that Megan was kidnapped and forced into underground human sex trafficking. And Cynthia Karen, who's the president of Lost and Missing, suggested that Megan was already a victim of sex trafficking, even before she went missing. And Cynthia questioned why Akeem was at a nightclub in Maine when he lived primarily in Brooklyn. Surely the clubs close to New York were better, right? Well, there's speculation that Akeem went to Maine with the sole intent to isolate and emotionally manipulate a young woman into doing sex work and giving him a cut of the profits, which is exactly what happened. And this actually sparked a huge discussion about sex trafficking in Maine. And the Scarborough deputy DA even said that the local authorities were ashamed that they didn't see the problem with sex trafficking in Maine sooner. When at long last the police finally started looking for Megan, the Scarborough and the Suffolk County Police Departments joined forces. But the investigation could only be described as lackluster. 
The Scarborough authorities did ask the public for help, but also added the dismissive caveat. Unfortunately, Megan was last seen at a time where there may not have been a lot of people around. It's basically like they're saying, you know, no worries. You probably didn't see her, so don't worry about it. Later, Detective Don Blatchford of the Scarborough PD told reporters, we still don't know what happened. The fact of the matter is anything could have happened to her. With that, you're not exactly conveying a sense of urgency there, detective. But anyways, then in November of 2010, six months after Megan went missing, some New York-based police officers went to Maine to speak with Megan's family. So within the time that Megan had been missing, the police hadn't identified any suspects. They looked into Akeem, but after questioning him and searching both his laptop and his cell phone, he was cleared of being involved in Megan's disappearance. However, later, Akeem would be convicted of interstate trafficking of prostitutes. For that, Akeem was sentenced to three years in prison, despite a suggested sentence of only two years. So the judge who made that decision said, Akeem didn't kill Megan, but he certainly put her in the zone of danger. But some of Megan's relatives, like her sister Amanda, wonder if Akeem knows more than he's said. He was not at the motel when Megan had left. Megan called him and said she had no going call and that she would be back. And when he got back to the motel, she wasn't back yet. And that's when he called. I don't buy that. If that's his story, I don't buy it. And I mean, there's no way you're not going to know where my sister's going or who she's going with. You're her pimp. Called Megan 10 times in an hour of us hanging out, but he didn't know where she was for like two or three hours. I don't believe it. During the investigation, detectives confirmed that Megan was meeting a John for sex work when she went missing, but nobody could explain the strange circumstance surrounding this late night appointment. Like Megan didn't take Akeem with her for protection when she met this unknown John, and Megan also left items that she normally would have brought with her, like her phone. So why would Megan, a smart woman and a veteran sex worker, take these massive risks? Right. And it's something that for those of you familiar with this case or, you know, if you're just thinking critically, it could be a situation where this John demanded that Megan leave her phone behind. He could say something like, I have a high profile job. I'm not taking any risks. You're not taking any photos. I don't want to get blackmailed. I don't want to get extorted. Because otherwise, why wouldn't she bring her phone, right? It's interesting. And perhaps this person who asked this of her was a returning customer who she felt safe with. You know, she'd gotten out unscathed from her first appointment with them. And so she felt safe the second time to agree to his strange terms, which included leaving her phone behind. Meanwhile, Megan's missing. And her four-year-old daughter was starting to realize that she hadn't seen her mom in a while. And she started to realize that that was because something was wrong. And Megan's mother told the Long Island Press, in the beginning, she thought Megan was lost. But as time goes by, she's finally realizing that Megan is missing and nobody can find her. And when Megan's daughter saw her mom's picture on a news broadcast, she began asking her family questions about death and what it meant. And to add insult to injury, there's some question as to who should have gained custody of Megan's daughter following Megan's disappearance. So she did end up living with an aunt named Liz. But Amanda feels that she should have been the one to raise Megan's daughter. You know, after all, Amanda was Megan's sister and her best friend. Megan even asked Amanda to be her daughter's guardian if anything were to ever happen to her. She's like, no, Amanda, we need to go to the courthouse right now. You need to get custody if something happens to me. I want you to be her guardian. You're a second mom to her, Amanda. I tell them, like, nothing's going to happen to you, Megan. Like, what's going to happen to you, you know? Six months later, I went from basically raising every day to never seeing her. And I think that's what 
really hurts me too is that I didn't just lose Megan. I lost my niece and we were very close. Amanda shared with us that she struggled with drug addiction following Megan's disappearance. I mean, she lost her sister. She was traumatized. She was coping. And this could be the reason why she didn't get Megan's daughter immediately following the disappearance. But when Amanda got clean, she still wasn't granted custody. And sadly, Amanda has barely seen Megan's daughter, her beloved niece, since. And that has really emotionally devastated her. And these are some of the unforeseen implications of beyond someone being murdered, how that trickles down into so many other things. You know, Amanda doesn't just have to cope with the loss of her sister. She lost her niece, too. Seven months after Megan vanished, a Suffolk County police officer and his police dog were doing training exercises along a secluded highway called Ocean Parkway in an area on Long Island called Gilgo Beach. The location is about a 30-minute drive from the Holiday Inn where Megan was last seen. And on December 11th of 2010, the canine unit uncovered a set of human remains. This shocking discovery sparked a more thorough search of Gilgo Beach. And two days later, law enforcement officials found three more sets of skeletal remains. The remains were unburied, wrapped in burlap, and placed exactly 500 feet apart. These four corpses were obviously staged as if somebody was like assembling a trophy collection. Megan's family members gave the authorities DNA samples, and on January 19th of 2011, they identified 22-year-old Megan Waterman. She was one of the four victims found on Gilgo Beach. The other victims included Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Amber Lynn Costello, and the media dubbed them the Gilgo Four. All four victims were women in their 20s. They were all short and petite, around five feet tall. All four of them were sex workers who'd advertised on Craigslist and similar websites. And all four of them were last seen between July of 2007 and September of 2010. And according to the Daily News and Newsday, all four women were strangled. And this was the first gruesome discovery that sparked the 23-year-long search for the Long Island serial killer. But sadly, there was still so much more horror and pain to come. Immediately following the gruesome discoveries, a memorial was assembled in the location where Megan's remains were found, and it was engraved with the words, gone but not forgotten. And it's true, we haven't forgotten. And Amanda certainly hasn't either. After Megan's remains were found, Amanda was heartbroken, she was depressed, and she struggled with drug abuse. She's clean now, but her sister's murder and losing contact with her niece continues to take a toll on her, and it's so understandable. It just became, like, too much for me. Like, I lost my sister. I lost my niece. I don't know what I, I feel like I, you know, could have done something differently. I hold so much regret to like, like what could I have done, you know? What happened to Megan? The answer to that question could be the key to unlocking one of the biggest unsolved serial killer cases of the 21st century. And even though we don't have the answers, we hope you may. If you have any information pertaining to Megan's case or to the Long Island serial killer, please contact the Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. There's a $50,000 reward for your information leading to an arrest. But if you don't have any tips or information, you can still help. Today, you learned just one victim story, but there are many others. In part two, we'll tell you how the victims came to be discovered on Gilgo Beach, why a police officer and his dog happened to be searching this remote area at all, which a whole other story that 
if you don't know this case, will blow your mind. And brace yourselves, because if you don't know the story, it really is kind of the craziest case there ever has been, I mean, in my opinion. And obviously, we told you at the top of this episode about the initiative that Jack and I are doing with jewelry brand Jimmy Toast. Every Friday for the next 10 weeks, we're doing bonus episodes about the victims and releasing limited exclusive drops of these necklaces that are named after each victim with 100% of net profits going to Swap USA, which is a sex workers outreach project. Visit theheavymetalproject.com. We have information about everything we're doing and about Swap and everything you need to know there. huge thank you to Amanda for being our first degree for this episode. Thank you so much for your perseverance and your bravery. Thank you for being candid and walking us through the most difficult experience of your entire life for the purpose of helping to get justice and for the purpose of helping anybody who might be listening to this podcast. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for the first degree producing by Caitlin Cleveland Writing and amazing research by Andrea Marshbank. Thanks, Andrea. Sources for this episode are Gilgo News, the Doe Network, the Long Island Press, court documents, CBS's 48 Hours, the Gilgocase.com, New York Daily News, the New York Post, NamUs, Oxygen, ABC News, Ancestry, Find a Grave, Newsday, the Associated Press, Unraveled, which is all my original research. Yes. The Banner Daily Ness, Sun Journal, Journal Tribune, Robert Kolker's Lost Girls, Amazing Job, Robert Kolker, Portland Press Herald, Morning Sentinel, Professor Scott Cunningham, William and Mary Law School, National Library of Medicine, and NBC New York. And as always, our first great guest is always our largest source. <laughs>